Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Candice Fujikane, author of Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, Kanaka Maoli and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii, published this year by Duke University Press. Dr. Fujikane, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Okay. So um, I grew up on Maui. I'm fourth generation Japanese American, so Yonsei. And um, I went to the University of Hawaii for my BA in English. And then I went to UC Berkeley for my PhD. And when I went to Berkeley, it was a real political awakening for me. Um, There were people in... uh, protesting uh, against the university's plans to build a volleyball court in People's Park. And there were police in riot gear shooting rubber bullets at students. And and I it, would, it was totally different from what I had grown up with. But later on, when I was older, I realized that these kinds of uh, events were also happening in Hawaii, where people were standing to protect lands from geothermal development, for example, and they were standing up to police in riot gear. So uh, well, I thought Berkeley was totally radical at the time, I later realized that Hawaii was just as radical, but I just wasn't at the center of it. Um, and so I uh, was at, I lived in the Bay Area for five years, and um, then I got this job at the University of Hawaii uh, as an English professor. Uh, and I started to, I've always been involved in the sovereignty movement um, for the past 20 years, or more than that, uh, 25 years. And um, I was standing for lands um, and giving testimony and realizing that maps are critical to rethinking our relationships with land. So in Hawaii, we do face a lot of problems like the corporate diversion of water or um, the states wanting to build industrial astronomical complexes in conservation land areas uh, on mountaintops. Uh, and so people are uh, very actively engaged in um, standing to protect these places as Native peoples are at Standing Rock or um, in uh, the Idle No More movement. So that kind of brought me to to writing about mapping and mapping land struggles. Um, and uh, the book really is about mapping um, stories about climate change and the ways that Kanakamali ancestors approached those events. So um, I took six years of learning Olelo Hawaii so that I could read um, the new paper, the newspaper stories about um, just the stories and, and what the ancestors, the kupuna did was they recorded their strategies for approaching climate change in these stories and chants and riddles and um, songs. And so it gave me access, learning Olelo Hawaii gave me access to a broader worldview beyond the one that I had grown up learning in an American political system. Uh, So the book is really about uh, mapping abundance as a refusal to succumb to capital's logic that we are past an apocalyptic point of no return. Uh, There's a lot of uh, uh, kind of pessimism out there, and I wanted to write a hopeful book that gets at the ways that um, just as harmful events have exponentially damaging effects or devastating effects, a restorative action catalyzes far-reaching and unexpected forms of revitalization. I, I can go on. <laughs> no, that, English that's great. And you've touched on already a bunch of the things that I wanted to ask you uh, about. So we can go on and kind of elaborate on 
some of those ideas. Uh, so I want to start with the idea of cartography and mapping, since you know that's right in the, the title of the book. But this book is really about thinking about cartography and mapping in a different way, uh, thinking about ways of doing cartography that aren't what a lot of people might assume when they hear um, that word. And so you just write off uh, from the very beginning of the book, you start by describing this story about the journey of the, I hope I'm saying this right, the Mo, yeah. uh, water deities, uh, and talking about that as a uh, you know, form of cartography. So I was hoping you could talk a little more about that and about the way that uh, you're thinking about cartography differently than a sort of typical idea of what maps are. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I, maps are so fascinating to me. And um, I look at the maps of capital. So the maps that developers use, which are the recognizable maps with tax map keys and lines and grids and altitudes and degrees and all of those kinds of numbers and letters. Uh, and then by contrast, I look at how Kanakamali map lands and um, their mapping of lands in the Mo'olelo are in the form of stories. So stories would explain where places were in relation to other places. And um, even if we look at the 1850 Land Commission Awards that happened after um, the institution of private property, um, those maps also um, describe places uh, what you know would be a tax map key in terms of the rising and the setting of the sun, whether it was inland, um, up against the mountains, the pali, or whether it was um, on the ocean side of an area. And so um, I, I, when I was testifying um, before these land use commissions or boards of land and natural resources or commission on, the water, on water resources management, I had to convey a different way of understanding the integrity of land, the ways that places on the land are related to each other and cannot be cut off um, from each other. Uh, maps of capital tend to engage in this mathematics of subdivision where it will cordon off an area into smaller and smaller pieces until it no longer looks um, agriculturally feasible or is no longer culturally sensitive. And that's how developers and the state get around um, laws protecting culturally sensitive sites. When you look at the stories about lands, however, you learn that the mountains are sometimes a mother, the, um, the hills below her are her children, um, the ocean is also another relative, that the stories are told uh, to, to link these places. And as I was sifting through all of these maps, I saw how Mo'o'aina um, as a concept was a way of showing how uh, Mo'oaina is a is a land division smaller than an ahupua'a. So the ahupua'a is the basic land division that generally stretches from the mountains to the seas, but is more defined in terms of what kinds of foods can be gathered in different zones. And so um, Mo'oaina is a smaller land division that stretches across um, a it stretches across a, an ahupua'a, but sometimes they're also seen in relation to mo'oaina that stretch laterally across the land. So when, as I thought about the way water travels from the mountains to the sea, I saw that mo'oaina was a way of thinking about how la uh, water travels laterally over the land. So, you know, clouds don't abide by man-made boundaries. Clouds travel where they want to travel, and so does water underground. Water underground doesn't stop at boundaries either. And uh, So the story of the procession of the Mo'o, which is an incredibly beautiful, just a stunning image of these Mo'o, these reptilian water deities who often took the form of beautiful men and women. They're very fierce. So they're very frightening, actually. And the mo'o themselves as lizards were 30 feet long. 
Um, you can imagine a procession uh, of them walking across the island of Oahu two by two. And it's a way of mapping the waterways on Oahu. And the path that they took, um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm also a geology buff. And the path they traveled along uh, is actually an erosional unconformity between two lava series. So the Ko'olau lava series and the Waianae lava series. And where they meet, there's an indentation where water travels. And I, I, in my thinking, that is where the Mo'o would have traveled, is along that path of water. And then when they hit... Um, uh, the harbor, what is you know now known as Pearl Harbor, they had to travel underground to the underground sources of water. So I also talk in the book about how sharks, <laughs> sorry, it's a rooster, sharks would often travel uh, through these uh, underground subterranean waterways to swim in mountain pools, and so we get a more complex understanding of water through this kind of mapping that um, in some ways goes against traditional ways of thinking about the, the way what the ways that water I mean the let's see Western ways of thinking about water um, so mapping in that sense is about our intimate relationship with land it involves generations of kilo or close observation uh, of uh, elemental phenomena that enabled Kanaka to predict um, weather events or other kinds of political events. And that uh, kilo observation has a lot to do with the ways that lands are mapped and how their mappings are remembered by place names. Place names in Hawaii are very important. and they're often renamed by Americans and other um, geographers so that, you know, what we know as Diamond Head, and so always remembered and picture postcards, is actually known as Laiahi, or the forehead of the Ahi. And it is actually steeped in other stories about its significance in that way. Um, So place names in Hawaii are a way of remembering these stories, what places were known for, you know, particular resources, and that gets lost when the names are erased and replaced. So um, when I think about land, I think about reestablishing those relationships with kilo observation, uh, a resurgence of Kanaka ways of knowing and relating to land and to each other. Uh, what popularly people define uh, akua as gods, they're actually the elemental forms and natural processes that define different places. So these ways of mapping are very conceptual. Um, They run deeper than just a topography of the land. I think of cartography more as a biography of land a story about the life of the land, its history, what changes it has gone through over time. And for Kanaka Maoli, the land is Papahanao Moku, or the foundation, she who is the foundation who births islands. And many of the names, oh, uh, I, I should also mention Sky Father. So <laughs> Wakea is the expansive uh, skies, and he's the father. But when we talk about land, it is the consciousness of Papahanao Moku. And through close observations, um, Kanaka Maoli were able to map um, this kind of ike kupuna about land or the kanavai, the laws of the land. And for Kanaka Maoli, the laws of the elements supersede the laws of humans. Human laws are incredibly problematic. They're often driven by profit motives. They're driven by problematic ideas about progress. And so many Kanaka are returning to the Kanavai uh, Akeakua, or the laws of the, the elemental forms. So yeah, that's a very expanded way of thinking about mapping. So I, I look at murals, I look at stories, um, I look at land commission awards, which were kind of like, um, there were deeds to, to property. Um, I look at um, uh, 
let's see, uh, riddles. And I do look at, um, uh, let's see, uh, kinds of images that people uh, take photographs of to represent, say, their relationship with Mauna Wakea. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with the controversy over Mauna Wakea, but Mauna Wakea is a very sacred mountain. And the state and the University of Hawaii at Hilo wants to build um, the 30-meter telescope on this mauna. And um, this is an example of, of the maps of capital. So they argue that um, there's really uh, no water that will be contaminated by the construction of an industrial complex on this mountaintop even though it's designated as conservation lands because the state recognizes that this is where uh, water is generated for the entire island. And um, that kind of industrial mapping is countered by the ways that people have mapped their resistance on the land. So they look at Lake Vaio, which is at the very summit of Mauna Wakea. They see that as the pico of their struggle and they when they were protecting the lands, they mapped 16 lines of protectors crossing the road going up the mountain in order to represent the 16 lines of the Kumulipo, which is the cosmogonic chant, uh, the cosmogonic chant um, detailing the birth of all things from the deep darkness. So the birth of plants and animals and the stars even, um, the birth of land formations. Um, and all of this is mapped in the 16 um, eras of the Kumulipo. So you can see how they were mapping their struggle in a way that was rooted in their ancestral knowledge and also in the Mo'olelo of Kamiki, which tracks the water that travels from Mauna Kea to uh, all parts of the island. So that is, a, a, a again, a very broad way of thinking about mapping knowledge, how we're able to map that resource of water um, at the same time that uh, Western scientists were saying, there's no water, you know, on this plane. And it turns out, you know, very recently they found out, uh, of course, there's water that travels under this plane. And uh, the waters from Mauna Kea travel to Mauna Loa, another uh, mountain in the distance. So yeah, so in that sense, very broad definition of mapping spatiality, mapping knowledge, um, mapping relationships in a very embodied and relational way. Yeah, so I've actually been teaching an environmental justice course this semester, and the 30-meter telescope was one of our case studies that we looked at, but I hadn't thought of putting it in the sort of cartographic terms that you talk about here. So I, I need to keep that in mind next time that course comes around in my uh, course rotation. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's such a rich, I have two chapters on Mauna Kea because there are so many stories that people, that emerged out of people's experiences of live, growing up with that mountain and they knew so much more than the hydrologists or the archeologists. You know, the archeologists don't even consult um, current practitioners because they are quote unquote biased. Uh, and so I, they, then, they, then they argue that very little is known about these archaeological sites. And so it's, it's very frustrating. And, you know, there are new, modes of archaeology like distributional archaeology that argues that you know we shouldn't be looking at sites in isolation from each other but we should understand that sites comprise complexes um, and so you know it gets into all of these disciplinary kinds of arguments and how indigenous knowledges poses a challenge to so many of our the western disciplines that we work in Yeah, that's great. Um, so one of the things that you talk about in this book is that there are already a lot of, sort of projects going on underway uh, to restore this relationship between the people uh, and the land, uh, you know, at this localized kind of uh, 
scale. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about some examples of what exactly that looks like uh, in practice as people are working towards some of these uh, goals that you're kind of pointing us towards in this book. Oh, thanks for that question. Uh, I One of the arguments I'm making is that um, these projects in, in Hawaii challenge our ideas about scalability. So often the idea that a project must be global in scope or must be funded by corporate you know, uh, resources or state resources in order to be effective, I argue the opposite. I argue that these um, smaller localized projects have exponentially expanding effects far beyond what we can expect or know. So um, there's there are many, many projects in Hawaii restoring lo'ikalo, uh, which are the taro pond fields, restoring lokoi'a, the fish ponds, restoring awai, which are the waterways that feed the, the taro fish ponds. And there's so many stories to tell. Um, I could tell the story about the fish pond is one example of a localized example. Um, so this fish pond in Heia, uh, the Heia fish pond is 800 years old, or actually it could even be older than that. It could, yeah, I think it's about 800 years old. It could be eight to 1500 years old. And uh, it had fallen into disrepair over the years. There was a, a large flood that damaged part of the wall. And, and one of the problems these uh, fish pond caretakers or cultivators, they call themselves mahi'a, which are like fish farmers. And it's not, you know, we people have a very negative idea about fish farming and thinking about chemicals, but these are like traditional fish farmers. So they're, they're using only traditional methods to raise fish. Um, they couldn't repair the wall because of state laws dictating how such restoration should occur. And so they were five years deep in red tape. And, you know, so that's some of the, the difficulties they faced. But they were finally able to get a permit to repair the wall. And when they did, um, they uh, found that um, that well, one of the problems they had one of the problems was that in the interim they were using um, these fishnet pens. And so with the changing climates, the El Nino uh, patterns are changing. So whereas the warm waters were, were mainly in the more western area, they're slowly moving more eastward in this El Nino Modoki phase. And so this El Nino Modoki is the anomaly that comes from climate change. And what happens is that in Hawaii, the fish ponds suddenly get very hot and there's not enough wind. And because there's no wind, there's not enough oxygenation of the water. And they went through these enormous fish kills. And so what they realized was they had to find ways to um, provide more oxygen and more greater stream flows to these fish ponds. And so one of the things they started doing was clearing the mangroves away from Heia stream so that the stream could flow more easily into the fish pond. Now, mangroves are useful in other parts of the Pacific, but in Hawaii, they're very damaging for fish ponds because they choke off these stream flows. And when they started clearing the, the water, I'm sorry, clearing the mangroves, the cold water um, would cool off the waters in the fish pond. There was better aeration and the fish did uh, survive better. So in Kanakamali knowledges, the fresh streams are Kane. He is the deity of fresh water that flows underground, but he's also the elemental phenomena of streams and springs, um, underground streams and springs. And the ocean is Kanaloa, the deep consciousness of the ocean. Now, the relationship in the Mo'olelo between Kane and Kanaloa is very important because these cold stream flows are actually necessary for, <clears throat> excuse me, to cool the waters around the islands to protect us from hurricanes. So it's a wonder, you know, that we don't get hit more often by hurricanes. We're in the middle of the Pacific, but we often have these hurricanes barreling towards us, particularly from the 
West Coast, the U.S. West Coast from California and those areas and from Mexico and the hurricanes come barreling towards us. But when they hit the cool waters around the islands, they veer north or they veer south. And that's why the relationship between Kane and Kanaloa is so important and why this act of cutting down the mangroves and clearing the stream flows has a restorative effect not only for Kaneohe Bay, but for the larger land masses. And it's also about this way of cultivating um, phytoplankton. So they do a lot of education for the schools about phytoplankton. Um, So the children learn about how phytoplankton is necessary to the production of oxygen, um, about the sequestration of carbon in the oceans, and the importance of phytoplankton in reproducing this kind of oxygen and how phytoplankton populations are falling as well as coral populations. And so they learn these things, these, these practical lessons at the fish ponds, which maps for them the process by which um, the stream flows are necessary to the mixing of the fresh and the salt water in the estuaries and the reproduction of phytoplankton. So, you know, that kind of mapping is one that children can remember and it's easier for them to remember a story. And so they tell these stories about how to map these um, ecological processes. There's actually a really cool video online that talks about how the mo'o, so the mo'o meheanu is the reptilian water guardian of the he'ea fish pond, and it's her urine. Uh, her urine, they would say in the you know in old times, that her urine would turn the vegetation around the fish ponds yellow. So the hoe, is a kind of a form of hibiscus. It's like a yellow kind of variety of hibiscus, I think it's called. Um, But what it does is, um, so Mo'o love these yellow flowers. They're often seen or depicted or seen um, uh, stringing lays of yellow flowers on rocks as they're sunning themselves. But in this particular case, this meheanu, um, her urine turns all the vegetation yellow, but it's also about the nitrogen cycle. So they're teaching the students about how her urine is part of the nitrogen cycle and the the nitrates that are necessary, um, the production that feeds the baby fish. And, And it's a video online and they're dancing, but they're also telling the story. And it's also a lesson about nitrogen and phytoplankton. So that's the kind of stuff I love, where we can marry decolonized STEM knowledges with ancestral knowledges so that both enrich each other. Yeah, I love that that illustration. I think that really gets at that idea of Kilo, the close observation of local conditions that you were talking about earlier. Because, you know, if you'd asked me before I read this book, you know, what do you think about mangroves? I've been like, yeah, mangroves are great. You know, we should have more of them everywhere. But, you know, in that case, mang- you know, and that's true lots of places, yeah. but in that particular case, mangroves are actually, you know, removing them is actually helpful. Um, and so you need that, that close attention to specific places and environments to understand that. Right, right, right. And- so you mentioned uh, towards the end of that uh, discussion, kind of the next thing that I wanted to, move into uh, because throughout this book, decolonization and indigenous perspectives are are really at the heart of what you're talking about. Uh, But, you know, in the subtitle of the book, it says Kanaka Maoli and critical settler cartographies. So how do you see the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people and the role of settler allies uh, in this work? Oh, that's, that's also a really great question. So, about um, in 2000, um, I edited a book called Asian Settler Colonialism, and it was based on an essay we had gotten for the a, a general collection we were soliciting papers for. And Honani K. Trask sent us a paper where she talked about Asians as settlers of color. Now, people in Hawaii, they call we call ourselves local. Right, we're locals, and not in the sense that you're just local to a place, but it's become an entire, like a like a, a way of identifying. It's become an identif- identificatory 
category. So to be local means to have a kind of commitment to place. Um, it's a blending of cultures, and it's also a culture that's gro- that grows out of um, unequal power relations. So people who are local in Hawaii um, often feel like we're somehow less than the continent because we speak non, like not a standard English. We speak pidgin. Uh, so we, you know, what, or what others call Hawaii Creole English. And um, we're seen somehow as being less than the continent. People often assume that we live in grass huts and that we just pick coconuts off the trees and eat them. And, you know, I, I when I was living in the Bay Area, I'd see these billboards that had uh the sign that said rush hour in Hawaii. And it was like one canoe in the middle of the open ocean. And it's like, that is not true. We have terrible traffic <laughs> in Hawaii. Um, so, you know, working against all those kinds of um, ideas. Um, so, you know, the idea of, of people of color being settlers was very, um, what's the word unsettling. It was very, it made people very upset. People were really angry. There was huge backlash about how we never talked about local, but I actually do talk about how local is often used against Native Hawaiians uh, in the sense that when we look at the state legislature, there was a huge push to have local people become politicians, representatives, senators in our state legislature. Today, as a result of those efforts, we can see that 65% of our state legislature in Hawaii is Asian, and only 10% is Kanaka Maoli, and about 25% is white. So we can see already the power disparities there where Asians are making the legal decisions about things like land use in Hawaii. And so Haunani was speaking out against that. So we we edited a collection called um, Whose Vision? Asian Settler Colonialism in Hawaii in 2000 as a special issue of Amerasia Journal. And then uh, in 2008, it was expanded and republished as um, Asian Settler Colonialism from Local Governance to the Habits of Everyday Life in Hawaii. Um, and so at that time, we were very strict about, we were holding a hard line. And Haunani, I asked Haunani, what about the settlers who are allies? Can I, can I mention them in the intro? And she said, no, it's too early. People are going to be too quick to rush to claim that identification. Let them sit with this idea of being a settler for a, lo- a longer while. Because people in Hawaii, you know, people of color, they think that only white people are settlers. But the reality is that it's really Asians who are uh, holding political power in Hawaii. So um, that was in 2008. And so in my book, I figure, okay, I think it's time now to kind of move into a new phase of thinking. Um, A really highly respected Kanaka Maoli scholar, Noelani Gujir Kaupua, she and I had had a conversation about whether we could use the term settler aloha aina. And so she wrote in her book in 2013 about, her, her book is called The Seeds We Planted, Portraits of a Native Hawaiian Charter School. She talks about being a settler aloha aina as a way of caring for the land supporting Hawaiian independence, um, but not forgetting the privileges we derive from a system of settler colonialism. And so I I really pick that up in this book, saying that many can now be called settler allies. We've had a lot of settler allies stand for Mauna Kea, and they are allies. The next move is one step further, and that is to stand for the land. So aloha aina means to love the land, but it was also a name for patriots under the Hawaiian kingdom who supported Queen Liliuokalani at the time she was overthrown. So aloha aina are also the patriots, those who support Kanaka Maoli's self-determination. So I would say that I am a settler aloha aina. It's a complicated relationship because I still have these privileges And what I argue in the book is that as settler, um, critical settler cartographers, as settler aloha aina, what our job 
is, is to take on the toxic spaces where Hawaiians are testifying to protect lands and waters. And so, you know, why are they, why are indigenous people the ones who are taking the brunt of, you know, the injury when they stand for, uh, when they stand on the front lines against climate change? And so I really, I argue, I, I, done a lot of testifying it's not easy it's toxic you hear the ways that attorneys will try to discredit kupuna the elders you hear all of these egregious arguments that as someone interested in environmental justice it just gives me hives to hear these arguments so we need to step forward, help to take up that burden by testifying in these toxic spaces. And we also need to stand on the front line. So in Hawaii, who's getting arrested to protect lands and waters? Primarily Kanaka. And I went to one event um, where people in a community in Kahuku were standing against uh, wind turbines because the wind turbines in and of themselves are not a problem, but they're actually located too close to homes and they were having devastating consequences on people's health. So children with epilepsy, elderly people, they were getting sick from the low frequency vibrations from these giant turbines. And so I talked to one of the wom- one of the women who was on the front line and she said, yeah, I've been arrested three times. I look at her and I'm like, how can you be getting arrested for the first, fourth time? I said, you know, you stand on the side and I will stand, I will, I will hold space for you. So that's the term we use is to hold space. So I'm not Kanaka. And that's the other thing I should make clear is that I'm not Kanaka. Yeah, I'm, I'm Japanese. I, I introduced myself that way. I told her I'd, I'd stand on the front lines and get arrested. And that's the kind of relationality we need. And it's because I've been this committed that, you know, I've really learned so much more than I would have if I was sitting in my office writing a book. Uh, I would go out on work days, get to know people and their families, get to know their stories. I love stories. I, I am a, I would say a budding storyteller myself. So uh, I retell their stories with their permission. I have them look over what I've written. I quote them. I let their voices speak for themselves. I'm not just I'm not just, um, uh, you know, presenting their views. I'm actually quoting them. And I think that that is the service I can do as somebody who's not Kanaka, who's still learning about um, my kuleana. So my kuleana is my responsibility, what is in my purview, what is allowed for me to speak for, yeah? So I'm always very conscious of what is my kuleana, where are the boundaries, but how can I provide a space for uh, Kanaka Maoli to speak because they don't have access to publication. Like an average Kalo farmer doesn't have access to, to publication, and yet he's a geologist, he's uh, a meteorologist, he is a hydrologist, he's a soil scientist, he's a botanist, he's, uh, you know, he's every kind of scientist, and yet oftentimes the Kalo farmer's point of view is not respected. Uh, Jerry Konanui is a highly respected eighth generation farmer, and he talks about how he is all of these kinds of scientists. And it's just that they're often discredited uh, for being practitioners, uh, for not speaking university speak. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I feel like that's my job is to make open that venue for them to speak for themselves. And that's that relationality uh, of restoring abundance is how we can work together in ways that are rooted in community perspectives and ancestral knowledges. Great. So I want to now kind of circle back around to something that you brought up in your introductory uh, statement, um, which is this 
debate that we see among climate change activists and scholars about whether we need to, on the one hand, like really scare people with all the terrible things that, you know, we're headed for with climate change versus, on the other hand, trying to, you know, be hopeful and inspiring to people with kind of a positive uh, vision. And I feel like your book manages to be both very challenging in terms of the scale and depth of the change that is really going to be necessary to address climate change while also having this really positive vision of where we'll be if we succeed at all this. So uh, how do you see this sort of doom versus hope argument and where would you place your work in relation to that? I, I really love the, that way of characterizing it. Um, my friend Jerris Grove has a book called Savage Ecologies. And <laughs> I tell him we're just complimentary. So he comes at it from what he calls a politics of gore. <laughs> I just laugh and I say, well, I have a politics of abundance. We're totally, and he, and yet despite a politics of gore, he is hopeful. And, you know, we're inspired by people like um, uh, Donna Haraway, uh, Donna, uh, is it Donna Haraway's um, uh, uh, "Staying with the Troubles"? We're we're inspired by um, people like um, the Mushroom at the End of the World, Anna Singh. You know, we're we're uh, we're just really inspired by the work that they're doing. Um, and yeah, it's like I see so much resignation. Like my my twelve year old was telling me that he wasn't going to have kids because he he didn't envision a future. And I thought, how sad is that, that children are just giving up because they're being told that there's no future for this planet. And how much of that is a kind of part of capital's way of creating hunger and unmet needs and, you know, capitalizing on, you know, the the splurging on the here and now because there will be no future, you know. Uh, I don't, you know, that apocalyptic narrative, even though it's, I don't know, weirdly seductive. Uh, in the sense that Walking Dead has such popularity, trained all these zombie narratives, there's this kind of comfort in starting all over. It's the idea that that kind of apocalypse, that human apocalypse is going to slow the train that we're on towards uh, the end of the world for humanity. Okay, so the hopefulness comes from this. Uh, I went to a a talk where a Kanaka Maoli scientist said, uh, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's going to be the end of Western civilization. Indigenous peoples will survive beyond that because we're returning to our ancestral practices. And I thought that was actually kind of hopeful, you know, in a way that um, we're addicted to capital. And, you know, that's kind of what's happening with this pandemic is, I feel that in some ways it's weaning some of us off of capital, uh, capitalism, you know, and it, there's a way in which we're turning inward and thinking about what we want for our children, what we want for our futures. And I see more and more people uh, coming to, you know, more insightful ways of thinking about that future. Um, the other thing is that um, when you actually work with restoration people and you ask them about climate change, like Puni Jackson, I asked her, are, are you concerned about climate change? And she just, she just laughed and she was just kind of like exasperated. And she said, you know, as indigenous people, we've been dealing with so many waves of change waves and waves of colonization of course we're going to survive this it's not like this is some big ship that we have to turn around we've always made decisions based on long-term intergenerational planning and we are going to continue to do so and it's just that kind of steady sense of purpose um, and just in their line of work they see the revitalization every time coral or coral comes back to life or when trees or forests come back to life. So there are these cascading effects say at a fish pond where when you restore the fish pond, you first see um, the return of these, um, uh, the ahuaava plant, which is one of the indicators for resurgence and restoration. There's a, there's a, res a restoration of seaweeds, the Native birds come back. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, 
oh, uh, what, I'm sorry, uh, 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 sorry, uh, ale birds come back, all these different plants and native vegetation comes back. They see it on a daily basis, and that's why they're hopeful that change, negative changes are not necessarily permanent. And um, I, I understand also what you're saying about um, I don't want people to to also feel like, oh, let's just leave everything to them and we don't have to do anything ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's not like just these restoration projects are going to save the world. You know, we all have to kind of take our places in that. Um, I, I'm just hoping that more people will go to these work days and will work to restore these places and, and kind of learn about these restorative effects. So we shouldn't stop the kind of activism we see against corporate dumping of, you know, pesticides and thinking about the algae blooms in Florida and thinking about um, all, all over the world where we see these kinds of corporate disasters or, you know, the burning of the Amazon forest, those kinds of things we have to fight against. But local struggles, we're always fighting for two things at the same time. Or for me, it's three. One, it's again, uh, I fight uh, I, within and against the settler state, against some of its harmful development projects. But I also have to envision a future beyond that settler state or the sort of beyond capital where there's more of a just redistribution of, of resources. So yeah, the book is premised on the idea that capital fears an abundance that feeds because that's exactly um, what it will, will, you know, it makes capital so problematic is the promise of a just redistribution of resources. So I decided, okay, I'm going to map that abundance and we need that hopefulness at this time, you know, with the pandemic, with the anti-Asian racism, with the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, having to fight so hard, I, I, you know, for defunding the police and an abolitionist future, we need some hope to keep going. And that's kind of the larger vision I see for like a decolonial abolitionist future where we're not dependent on systems that are born out of racism to save us, but that we are devising um, our own kinds of communities to meet our needs. So it's not necessarily only status forms, like as in um, Hawaii's independence, but also non-status forms of organizing that we saw on Mauna Kea where, you know, they actually had the capacity to feed thousands of people every day because people were donating food. Um, there was, you know, there were people donating porta potties. I think that was the most important thing actually, porta potties, <laughs> you know, um, you know, they were donating all of these things, knowledge, they were donating services. Um, I taught there because uh, I, I love the Mo'olelo. I taught the Mo'olelo. We each have a contribution to make. Um, and I think that that's something worth fighting for. And even even Naomi Klein, right? You know, people tell her, you know, there's enough evidence that we're never going to be able to turn back the damage that's already been done. And she says, Yes, but do we want to live with that kind of despair or do we live with hope that things can somehow be saved? Two points of environmental law I also want to really emphasize. Environmental law is there to, one, protect what's left and two, to repair what's damaged. So environmental law is hopeful about repairing the damage. And some of the legislation we see coming out of Hawaii is really not even thinking about restoration. It's almost like, uh, let's just uh, rush to our demise. <laughs> you know? uh, but no, you know, I think uh, we have to be patient and understand restoration is intergenerational. And there have been people in it who have been in it for a really long time. Okay, yeah, and that's, I think that's a really important perspective that really comes through well uh, in the, the book, and it was kind of exciting to, to read, uh, read that. Um, so I have one more question kind of about the book it, itself, which is about your research process in doing this book, because you pull together a lot of different materials uh, from, you know, maps that were made back, like, before the U.S. occupation of Hawaii, up through uh, poetry and art that's being done, you know, in the the current uh, time period. So, 
how did you go about uh, finding all of those things that you bring together as your kind of sources for uh, your book? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, I think that learning how to write testimony was really important because you do have to provide precedent. So you do have to provide um, other kinds of legal arguments that have been used uh, against whatever you're trying to oppose. Um, But also in Hawaii, there is a clause in the Hawaii state constitution um, that states that the state has a responsibility to protect Native Hawaiian traditional and customary practices. So that's where I would go into, say, like a cultural impact assessment. You know, the environmental, when you look at an environment, um, an environment and uh, uh, environmental impact study or statement. It does have these different elements: the archaeological study, the um, geological study, the hydrological study, the cultural study. I think that's how I began to get at the more layered um, ways of making these arguments. Thinking, yeah, now that I think about it, it's really the the structure itself of the environmental impact statements that had me thinking on these different levels. Um, And as we were putting together arguments against the TMT, we had to consider how to make these arguments on these different levels. I also, um, as an English professor, I teach courses in cultural studies. So cultural studies is about how a cultural artifact accrues meaning over time so like the volks um, volkswagen beetle you know how the um, the bug how the how the volkswagen um started out as sort of a project of hitler's and how it you know traveled through time to come to represent free love in the united states you know thinking about that or the 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 evolving meanings of uh, an, a hairstyle like an afro so that's the kind of training that i've had is how um cultural objects gain meaning over time and that's kind of what i was thinking about in tracing both like say pre-colonial meanings in oral traditions as well as contemporary meanings for people who are on the front lines of struggle and they themselves like when you work with um, activists on the front line they look to the past for inspiration and so they haku or compose their own stories of liberation. So you can look to a story like Maui and see him uniting the islands through the art of navigation. And then you can think about how the activists themselves are uniting the communities um, through the kinds of, um, like a song, like one of the songs very popular right now is Kuha Aheo. And whenever anyone starts singing that song, everyone joins. And it's a song about how much we love Hawaii and how we are willing to give our all to protect this place. You know, so it's, it's very, it's beautiful to think about the multiple levels of meaning, the structures of power and the relationships of power that kind of bring about these different kinds of meeting, meeting meanings and different kinds of contrasting and uh, contradictory, actually, um, uh, the ways that uh, indigenous knowledges uh, challenge, you know, the kinds of inevitabilities that capitalist logics present. Now, that's always really hopeful. Um, so, yeah, I love I love many layered texts. And, you know, I was also, you know, I grew up reading stuff like uh, Joy Harjo's, uh, I'm sorry, um, Leslie Marmon Silko's Yellow uh, Storyteller, where she weaves together photographs and memories and songs and stories, oral traditions. And so it's always been a part of my training as, as someone who 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 teaches stories to students and uh, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level. But yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really great question. And I, I am glad you asked that because I need to talk about that in my graduate course. <laughs> Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that was an interesting thing that came up when we were briefly talking over email, setting up this interview, because you're coming at this from this more kind of humanities perspective with the background in English and cultural studies and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of what's written about these issues comes from, you know, a social science point of view or even like a natural science, uh, you know, climatology uh, kind of point of view. So it, it 
you know, rounds out our, our way of looking at these things to have this other, you know, humanities type uh, perspective brought into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I should, I, I need to mention that the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation, um, they're actually Kanaka Maoli educators and they have a team of researchers called the Papaku Makawalu team of researchers. They're the ones who, who go through the oli and they teach us, oh, this akua, you know, like someone uh, like Hina, she is known for these natural processes. So, uh, for example, Hina lua ikoa means Hina vomiting coral, but it's really the process of coral spawning. And so they're the ones teaching this kind of um, um, sort of amalgamation of indigenous knowledge as it's embedded in the oli or the chants and the scientific processes. Or they say laka, the akua of the hula, she is the process of evapotranspiration. So yeah, I'm learning it from them too. So it's like I have all these models and that seems to be the way to go in Hawaii right now. Great. Okay, so hopefully we've uh, given everyone listening uh, a good sense of uh, what they're they're in for if they take a look at this book. So to wrap up our interview, uh, we always like to ask, what are you working on next? What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? Yeah, so um, I I ended up cutting like 500 pages from my manuscript. So I'm just kind of looking back and seeing which stories I can build into a new book. And I want to call it something like elemental cartographies. So it'll look at, um, you know, as the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation explains, you know, there are 400,000 akua. So, you know, and again, they used to be translated as 400,000 gods, but they really are 400,000 elements. So that where I live in Heea Uli, um, we have the Kaniko'o rain, that's one element. And then we have the Mololani wind, which is another element. But there, every valley, every location has its own wind, has its own rains, has its own ocean currents. The ocean currents have names. Places on the reefs have names. So I want to go deeper into that idea of the elemental cartographies and how they shape these places and how places are shaped by the elements. And so, yeah, it'll be kind of going a little bit deeper, perhaps into particular places. Um, I'm also learning how to make kappa, which is the bark cloth made from the voke or the mulberry bark and um we're making kappa with my kumu ibello. we're making this kappa to wrap all of the ivikumpuna or the bones of the ancestors that are being dug up in these devastating development projects and there are current fights you know to protect the sites where these bones are buried but as they're being dug up we make the kappa to wrap them in to be reinterred and it's a whole process of learning how to cultivate voke and for my kumu the prayer or the chants are a very important part of learning this intimate relationship with the elemental forms and so I'm, I'm learning to chant i'm learning to make kappa and it's all part of protecting the bones in the lands i'm also tracking how they're making their arguments so kanakamali are actually winning their cases in court because at the time of the overthrow of the um the Republic of Hawaii, who who were the businessmen who over the the white businessmen who overthrew the queen, they seized these crown and government lands, but they did not have legal title to these lands, and so when they gave these lands to the United States, and the United States gave them back to the state of Hawaii at the time of statehood in 1959, there is a lot of property out there that um, the state either sold or um, that have been sold like these are not these are trust lands or they're also lands that 
Hawaiians continue to have kuleana title to. So when you look through the land commission awards, you can see who was awarded which lands. They're winning cases in court right now, which is really exciting. And so um, I want to talk about um, one of the one of the uh, activists. His name is uh, Ke'el Mokukapu. He says that um, the TMK is really the problem for Kanaka Maoli now because that was the um, settler state's imposition of uh, a mapping process onto uh, Kanaka Maoli lands. And so, yeah, I'm sort of trying to engage in, in challenging like the idea of tax map keys and looking at other ways that Kanaka are mapping these lands and are winning their cases in court. It was very exciting. <laughs> so that's, that's the new book. All right. Well, hopefully we can have you back on uh, once that gets published. That all sounds really exciting. Thank you. So, you asked such wonderful questions. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, so listeners, you just heard a conversation with Candace Fujikane, author of Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, Kanaka Maoli and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii, published this year by Duke University Press. Mm-hmm.